Hi, everybody. I'm excited to have Lee Wilkoff back on the pod for his second appearance this week. Lee is an actor and director whose career on stage and screen has spanned more than 40 years. He has more than 101 IMDb act-in credits and counting in movies and TV shows from the 70s to the present day. And on stage, he's garnered Obie and Drama Desk Awards, as well as a Tony nomination on Broadway. Lee is a very charming and self-effacing guy. On his first episode, we talked at length about his long journey through show business, and he shared some wonderful anecdotes about so many of the people he's worked with over the years. It remains one of my very favorite episodes to date on the podcast, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, please seek it out. If you ask any actor worth their salts in New York or LA about Lee Wilkoff, you'll get a variation of the joyous squeal you can hear on the Big Lebowski episode when my guests Emily and Michael hear that I'm going to be talking to Lee on the episode you're listening to now. He's one of those people who's just beloved. He's a real artist, he's warm, he's a wonderful human being, he knows what's good, and he remains open to the surprises of life and show business. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the great Lee Wilkoff about the Coen brothers, Fargo. Lee, welcome once again to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here, and I know there are at least two other listeners that are thrilled that you're here, being Michael <laughs> Turnus and Emily, my guests from last week's episode, who, uh, as you'll hear, you're, you're recording this a few days prior to their episode being released, but you will hear a squeal of delight coming from Emily and Michael when I mentioned that you were coming on. I love them. I, I, I met uh, Emily at Williamstown years ago, a long time ago, and Michael, I was a huge fan, and when I heard they were getting together, that was like, perfect. Anyhow, they're great. You did the Big Lebowski, right? Yeah, we did a almost two-hour deep, deep dive into Lebowski. I can see that that's probably a film that Michael's like. <laughs> he was dressed like the dude. He had the sweater, he had the sunglasses, <laughs> he had all the lines. Yeah, it was great because Fargo came into the conversation a lot because when Lebowski came out, Fargo had come out before and Fargo was such a definitive film going experience for me. And it was so perfectly brilliantly everything that I wanted it to be that almost any movie that they would have released subsequent to that, I'm not sure that I would have got. And Fargo and Lebowski are so different from each other in the way that their movies tend to be. You can tell they wanted to move on and do something different after Fargo, which is so dark and the bile of America coughed up and presented to us in such brilliant fashion. Tell me a little bit about your experience seeing Far uh, Coen Brothers movies and, and if you remember seeing Fargo for the first time. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I, rem I, I watched it a couple times over the weekend and yesterday, and I said, Mm -hmm. I've probably seen this movie 30 times. Uh, I've seen most of their films several times. I, I have not seen Blood Simple Whoa. Uh, since it came out. And I have to visit that again. The world is full of complainers. The fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. Go ahead, you know, complain, tell your problems to your neighbor, ask for help, and watch him fly. 
Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. And down here, you're on your own. I just finished, I was reading, I just finished the somewhat auto, a memoir or autobiography of Barry Sonnenfeld. I have that too. I haven't started reading it. It's, it's fun and it's, I had no idea how, how neurotic yeah. he is. And he's so, he's a, he is a avowedly neurotic. Yes. I mean, he, he acknowledges that he, uh, somebody said to him, he's the most neurotic person that they've ever met. And so... But he was not the he was not the cinematographer on Fargo. Uh, interestingly, he I think his final movie with them was, let's see, there was the uh, there was Blood Simple, and he did Raising Arizona. Right. Was Barton? No, Barton Fink was Deacons, and Deacons. I think everything post Barton Barton Fink, uh, Miller's Crossing, Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo. That's all. That's all, Roger Deakins. All Deakins, and continues to be. I, I continues believe. to be. I believe. Yeah. Barry left because he started directing films, but right. but I I did read uh, that the birth of uh, Blood Simple. They they shot a couple scenes and they shopped it around for a year to raise seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. So I I didn't realize that he was not the DP on Fargo, but it makes, it makes sense. It, the style stylistically things started mm-hmm. to change, but I can't remember the, when I saw Fargo, but I'm sure I saw it opening weekend. I have no doubt Yeah, because I, 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 I love their films and yeah. it's, it's a goal of mine and I haven't, I've auditioned for several of them. I'd love to work with them more than anybody, more than anyone. You deserve that Lee. I mean, I said, I said to Michael, he made a he made a joke about you know the little Lebowski would be about thirty years old now, right? That the dude has uh, with Maud Lebowski. And I said, well, Michael, this is perfect, and he's like, oh, I'm too old for that now. I said, oh, you could you could play that down, but you and Michael both would be so perfect in the Cohen Brothers metaverse. There's no question. I I think so too. But I have you auditioned for them in the past? I've auditioned for. A Simple Man, the part that Richard Kind got, that wonderful role. They would not see me for true grit because people don't <laughs> think that I'm... Uh, you could do Westerns. You could totally do Westerns, 100%. I can do Westerns. <laughs> I've met them, and every time I've met them, I put my foot in my mouth. I get so nervous around them. And I know Fran a little outside of them. And I, I just, they, they, first of all, their body of work is, mm-hmm. with me, it all starts with performances. Yes. So the performances in Fargo. Yes. Down to the smallest role are, are just, just, just perfect. Just brilliant. And I think they used a few people. I, I, I went through the cast list yesterday on IMDb yeah. and was looking up what certain people did, people that had <laughs> small roles. And some of them never worked. They, that was their only film. Like one, the, 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 uh, the, smaller, uh, the, the smaller of the two girls that they had slept with, the one that said he's funny looking, he's funny looking and he wasn't circumcised. That was the only film she ever did. But she, they, they, they listed such beautiful performances from everybody but i don't think it's my it's the my favorite thing bill macy's ever done buscemi 
I mean, his body of work is amazing. And Fran and um, who else? Oh, what's his mm -hmm. name? I've never seen him before. Peter. Oh, Peter Stormar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peter Stormar. I had never seen him before. I I don't know if it was his first American film. And I'm going, who the, who the hell is this guy with this accent and this this hor just horribly frightening guy? I I just it's it's and there are moments of like slapstick. There are moments of like silliness and such darkness. I, I forgot to mention, I, I did Summerstock in 1974 with Harv Presnell. Oh, my God, really? And Harv Presnell was this big guy with a full head of hair. And we did, he, we did uh, Oklahoma. Because he was a big song and dance man, right? He was a big song and dance guy and then disappeared. Yeah. This was his first movie in 20, 20 years or something. I think he had, a, a, he had a big career, I think, on Broadway as a leading man. He wasn't a big star. Right. And then, who is this guy? Who is this bold? Who is this father-in-law? And then it's, it's Harv Presnell. May I be excused? Uh huh. You done there? Uh, I'm going out. Where are you going? Stop. Just McDonald's. Back at nine thirty. Okay. He just ate. He didn't finish. He's going to McDonald's instead of finishing here. He sees his friends there. It's okay. It's okay, McDonald's. What do you think they do there? They don't drink milkshakes. I assure you. So what, what year did the movie come out? I'm sorry, I didn't. I, I can't remember. 1990. It was 97, I want to say. Okay, I worked, I worked with him in 1974. So that's... Wow. He must have had a full head of hair then. Full head of hair. I, he was really a lovely guy, very friendly. And then he's playing this role, and I'm going, that's Harv Presnell? And, oh my God, was he a... Dick. Oh, come on. Don't tell me that. No, no, not in real life. In the movie. Oh, you in mean the in the movie? movie. Okay, no, good. in real oh. life, he was great. He was great. <laughs> oh, I loved him. I loved this guy. The Coens say that he was such a nice guy that it was hard in a way to, to be the dick that they needed him to be on screen. Well, they got it out of him. And that's why I've always wanted to work with him going, Man, how do you get these? What do you do to get these performances from these people in every film? Mm -hmm. I mean, admittedly, not all their films are like amazing or brilliant, but right. some of them yeah. they they miss sometimes. Sometimes yeah. they miss, but very rarely. And there's always something. There's always something special about their film. Yeah. I think that it goes to the writing, which is what every actor that has ever interviewed in any making of featurette about any of their movies just says, which down to, you know, Bill Macy talks about the scene in the bar where he first meets Buscemi and Stormare's characters. I'm uh, Jerry Lundegaard. You're Jerry Lundegaard? Yeah. Shep Proudfoot said... Shep said he'd be here at 7.30. What gives, man? Shep said 8.30. We've been sitting here an hour. He's peed three times already. Oh, I'm sure sorry. Shep told me 8.30. It was a mix-up, I guess. Mm -hmm. And when they're in, the, in a brilliant Cohen-esque twist, right, Buscemi and Stormare, the criminals, are essentially trying to talk Bill Macy out of this stupid plan that he's trying to put in motion. And they're the ones who are going like, well, why don't you just ask your father-in-law for the money? I will say this, though. What Shep told us didn't make a whole lot of sense. 
Oh, no. It's real sound. It's all worked out. You want your own wife kidnapped? Yeah. You... My point is, you pay the ransom, what, 80,000 bucks? I mean, you give us half the ransom, 40,000, you keep half. It's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay. See, it's not me paying the ransom. The thing is, my wife, she's wealthy. Her dad, he's real well off. Now, I'm in a bit of trouble. What kind of trouble are you in, Jerry? Well, that's, that's, I'm not gonna get into, into, see, I just need the money. Now, her dad, he's real well off. So, why don't you just ask him for the money? Or your fucking wife, you know. Or your fucking wife, Jerry. Well. And Stormare has that great line where he's like, for your, yeah, for your fucking wife, man. And the way Macy stammers, he's like, it's not, I'm. Well, that's, that's, I'm not gonna get into, into, see, I just need the money. You know, that's written exactly like that in the script with dot, 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 and pauses and stumbles. And Macy says that that's the starting point for him. Is like, it's like, it's also right there on the page. You're not, you are not, there's no improvisation in their films. No. And they, they are hardcore to the, to, as you said, to the dot, dot, dot. Right. Not just the word. And they've spent a lot of time writing these scripts, apparently. And yes. And Stormare says, you know, in the famous line in the car where he says, Where's Pancake's house? What? We stop at Pancake's house. What are you, nuts? We have pancakes for breakfast. Gotta go to a place where I can get a shot and a beer and steak, maybe. Not more fucking pancakes. Come on. Where is Pancake's house? It worked. That when they were filming that, he assumed it was a typo. So he said, his first take, he said, where is the pancake house? Cut, 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 stop, stop, stop. And Ethan or Joel come over and said, no, Peter, it's where is pancake's house? And, you know, being mm -hmm. from Sweden, he sort of didn't understand why they wanted it that way. So as writers, it's stupendous when you watch these movies. Mm -hmm. And I said this on the Lebowski podcast. It's also that, you know, lesser writers write mm -hmm. characters where all the characters sound like the writer. But these characters all have their own music and language. And that's an, that's an incredible ability they have. Incredible. Uh, which, I, I would love to be in the room when they're writing things. I don't know what the process is. You said that you were um, often, you felt like you put your foot in your mouth when you auditioned for them. But having watched them talk a lot, that's not the type of personality I do well in front of in like a, if it was a sales meeting or a pitch or an audition or something, because they're... They're very interior, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're wickedly smart, but they're very deadpan, or at least mm -hmm. Joel is extremely mm -hmm. deadpan. Ethan's a little, seems a little more kind of give and take, but I would find them incredibly intimidating, not just from the body of work, but because the way they would just be probably sitting there looking at you would be so intimidating. I would find that so hard to break through. But apparently if you break through and they're, they're, they're really fun to be around, but they, they, you know, in an audition situation, people people are not their real right true selves. Right. Uh, but I and I've met them on the street because I had a neighbor that was friends with them, and I did the same thing. It's just they they're very they intimidate me. I'm intimidated. It's like I I I I want to work with them, so I probably I hope I do. They're, you will. Apparently, they're doing will. they're doing the Scottish play. They're doing the, a movie of the Scottish play. 
and right, Fran is transmogrified, quite, right? It's yeah, some weird, I'm assuming. Yeah. I don't think they're doing. I, I don't know what what the twist is. I have no right. idea. But I looked up their future films, and that's right. That's what's next. It's either in pre or post production. Um, I don't know. They also is. said that you know, for Stormare, for example, they saw him in New York on stage. I think it was in Hamlet. He was playing yeah. Hamlet. Really? And yeah, they saw him on stage twice. And one time they offered him a role, I think, in Miller's Crossing, of all things, which he couldn't get out of his theatrical contract in Sweden that was touring the country or what have you. Mm -hmm. So he had to pass on the role. And then a year or two later, he was in a play with Francis McDormand, it turns out. And he met them again and they said, are you ready to be in our movie or what? And, you know, they were kind of like, you turned us down. And he sort of, you know, didn't have the, he didn't have the fine linguistic English skills to sort of explain to them this thing that he felt had happened, which was he tried to get out and do this movie, but he couldn't. And so I think to your point, um, when they, when they see something in an actor, whoever that actor is, you know, they, they remember and make space and time. So I did a play, I did Socrates at the public and uh, Tim Blake Nelson wrote it, who's in their, let's call sure. it their stock company. Yes. You know, Buster Scruggs and uh, Oh yep. Brother. And uh, I said, Tim, is Joel, is Joel and Ethan coming? He said, yes. I said, don't tell me when they're going to be there. <laughs> and then he told me they had been, that Joel had been there. Right. And uh, I think I had a good show that night. So that's good. Maybe I'd love to someday. You could have been in Buster Scruggs. I, I think you. I think you. I think a western is really. I mean, you. You. If you're wearing a different hat right now, you'd look a little bit like a, a guy panning yeah. yeah, for I gold. Mean, I could. Every scene they do, it's just. It's just. It's astounding. Every scene is a like a little play, and you know, mm -hmm. Ethan writes plays. Yeah. Ethan, uh, he did an evening of one acts at the taper earlier, mm -hmm. uh, late last year. And I heard, I've never seen his plays. I heard he's a really good playwright. Chernus was in one of them too. Ah. He had a similar thing to you. I think he's auditioned a couple times, come close a couple times, but hasn't happened yet and is waiting in the wings. He, as he humorously said, of course, when the time comes, I will accept. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Buscemi, who I, I guess I have to, I always say Steve Buscemi, but you listen to the people talking and I guess we're supposed to say Buscemi. 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 We're supposed to say Steve Buscemi. So, okay. I'll try and say it that way. Oh, just Buscemi in this. Phenomenal. Hi. How you doing? Yeah, I decided not to park here. Well, what do you mean? You decided not to park here? Yeah, I just came in. I decided not to park here, so... But, well, I, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, I decided not to, I, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I decided not to take the trip, as it turns out, so. Well, I'm sorry, sir. We still got to charge you the $4. I just pulled in here. I just fucking pulled in here. Well, but, see, there's, there's a minimum charge of $4. Uh, Long-term parking charges by the day. I guess you think you're, uh, you know, like an authority figure? That stupid fucking uniform, huh, buddy? King clip on tie there, big fucking man, huh? You know, these are the limits of your life, man. Rule of your little fucking gate here, here. 
Especially four dollars, you pathetic piece of shit. You know, it's, I wanted to ask you, like, why would he never get nominated for a performance like this? He's so good. He's such a good actor. And when you watch him in Fargo, particularly, there's a thing with him though, where he's kind of like this. He's like something that we have fun with, but I don't know that people take him as seriously as an actor as they really should. I think I think you're exactly right. He's like some is is the is the word an outlier. Uh, he's like, I think you, I think you nailed it. I did a film that he, we, we didn't work together, uh, called the gray zone, uh, directed right. by Tim Blake, Tim Blake Nelson. And written and, uh, Bashemi lives, we live in, we both live in park slope. Some years ago, I ran into him and talked to him that we were both in the same film. I, your question is, is really a good question because He's always really good. Mm-hmm. He's always s- special. It's not even yeah. good. It's beyond yeah. good. You know, is it because he's funny looking, like the girl says? That's. I swear to you, that's what I was going to say. You know what? I think more than getting nominated, which I'm sh- would would be great. He has. He is respected and admired by every actor, mm-hmm. and that to me is way better than. Of course, nomination. Of course, but um, and 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 in real life, nicest guy ever. He's like in this movie in Fargo. You know, I'm thinking these these scenes where like he's trying to leave the parking garage, and the guy, you know, the Minnesota nice parking garage attendant wants to charge him four dollars, or when he's bargaining with the police officer. How can I help you, officer? This a new car, then, sir. Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell. You're required to display temporary tags, either in the plate area or taped to the inside of the back window. Certainly. Can I see your license and registration, please? Certainly. Yeah, I was uh, gonna tape up those, the, the tag, you know, to be in full compliance, but uh, must have uh, must have slipped my mind. So maybe the best thing to do would be to take care of that right here in Brainerd. What's this, sir? My license and registration. Yeah, I want to be in compliance. I was just thinking we could take care of it right here in Brainerd. Put that back in your pocket, please. And step out of the car, please, sir. His his acting with his face and his control of his voice and his ability to convey, just in those two scenes, obsequiousness, explosive anger, and you know hatred for authority, but also like Macy in the movie, this this kind of stultifying awareness of his own low place in the on the ladder of life and society. And I just kept watching Fargo and thinking like, wow, you know, every Steve Buscemi movie, I'm always like, and everyone is always like, so on his side. And is so like, oh, Buscemi was great in that. Yet, he doesn't get that credibility, that sort of like, uh, granted, like bullshit public acknowledgement and respect as an actor. Like, I'm admiring the craft of his acting, particularly in Fargo, because he's such an important part of the movie and such a through everything. Oh my God, no way. You know, 
and be funny and be dark. Right. And what he does is not easy. It's not easy to pull off. Not, not at all. When you talked about their directing, it would be amazing to, to observe it. And I've heard a lot that, you know, they both will talk to actors that it works, that they're so in sync and they share mm -hmm. one brain to the extent that it really works really well on a movie set because more people essentially have access to the director since there's two of them. Mm -hmm. Are they um, actually code? Did, I mean, it, it, lately the, the credit is Joel as the director, but I always been the way it is. Has it always been Joel, the director? Joel, the director, Ethan is the producer mm -hmm. written by, and then Ethan, of course, under the pseudonym Roderick Janes mm -hmm. is the editor of the films along with his wife. Actually, I looked up uh, on this on Fargo and they, they were, they both edited it under the name Roderick James. Oh, they both did, yeah, Joel, they, too. They both did on, on Fargo. I don't know about the rest of the pictures. Now, there's a great anecdote about if, so they were nominated for editing for this. I'm going to look, see if I can find it on my phone here. They were nominated for best editing for an Academy Award for Fargo. And since it was a pseudonym, and I think at that point, maybe not many people within the industry knew that that's mm -hmm. what that was. Mm -hmm. They had a whole plan to, I think, have Albert Finney go up and pretend to be this sort of Brit editor from the sticks who was humbly accepting this award on behalf of his craft. But either word leaked out or they just didn't get the award and he didn't get to. They didn't win. They didn't win for that, which is crazy. You know, the scene where they have sex with the prostitutes at the Blue Ox. Mm -hmm. And then there's an immediate cut to the sort of joyless from the joyless sex to the Tonight Show theme, and they're mm -hmm. just all four sitting there in their own world watching the Tonight Show joylessly mm -hmm. as well. That's the kind of scene I would love to know what the direction is, not not the dialogue scenes per se, but the way that they're also vacant and staring at the TV in that scene. What did they say to the girls? What did they say to Stormare and Buscemi about, so, you know, you're post-coital, but you're also like, what are you thinking about as an actor? Because they look so alone together that I just, that's the type of direction I would love to know what a director says to an actor to accomplish that. I would, I would, I would love to, to know what they say. And if, do they talk, do they say a lot? Do they, do they say, do a take and then they give direction? I, I don't know. I've never, yeah. I've known people that have worked with them and I, I have never asked them, but mm -hmm. I, I, I'm curious. What do you say when you direct an actor? Well, I've only done it once. Mm -hmm. uh, no pain nudity, as you know. And uh, do you direct as an actor? Well, uh, my experience on no pain nudity is that I often didn't have to direct. I cast people that I knew kind of understood it. I remember there was a scene, there's a scene in the beginning of the film. Uh, the vet, the veterinary's assistant, <laughs> and yeah. she, her name's Janine Sorales fantastic actress. My wife's directed her in several plays. I just thought Janine is, I, I had to cast her. I had to put her in the film. She had a different take mm -hmm. than, than I had imagined. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to her. I don't remember exactly what I said, but she did what I actually wanted her to do. So I, I guess I spoke to her as actor to actor rather mm -hmm. than, I don't know if there's a, difference between director to actor i mean how have you been spoken to by directors in your career positively or negatively 
I was, I did, I, I, I came into New York to do a reading uh, back in February, Annabella Shora, and mm-hmm. she was on, she did a season on one of the uh, Law and Orders. I was, we were working and I remember how kind she was because a director said to me, he was Russian, you don't know what you're doing. What are you doing? You can't act. So that's how I've been spoken to. But oh my god! Once, um, what the hell? That means he doesn't know what he's doing. He didn't know what he was doing. That was pretty apparent to everyone on set. I'm sure. I'm trying to think. Um, Sidney Lumet, who I had the great pleasure of working with mm. a couple times, he didn't give direction unless you needed direction. And I was. He does one. He liked to do one take and then move on. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it the first take. And he, right. he, he gave me some direction. You need to be a, a little bit more, you're a little angrier, literally just a couple words. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get it in the second take. And the third, after the second take, he got angry at me. And that just kind of like, I had to please him. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I got it right. And then we moved on. Well, maybe he was fake angry at you to get the reaction that he wanted. You know, my film, I have to say my film uh, roles have, I need, I need um, kindness and gentleness and nurturing, and it takes me a while to find things. On mm-hmm. a film, I don't know, if they see, if they see it in the audition, I did, an, I did a Law & Order last year, and the director, I was just a little abrasive, and she just said, usually my direction is bring it down. It's really <laughs> just bring it down, Lee. I'm just a little too loud and a yeah. little too a little too much. Yeah, it's it's generally that. I think I I have an understanding of what's supposed to be done, but I just I pushed a little. Mm. And it, when you're rehearsing a play, you have time to sure refine that. Well, that's why, like a guy like Lumet, who so believes in the rehearsal process for a film you know, I think has got such a great reputation in a way. It's funny that he has a reputation as a great actor's director with what you're saying that he probably doesn't give actors all that much direction because again, casting, like if you're really doing good casting, probably most of that heavy lifting is taken care of. Speaking of casting in Fargo, Bill Macy wasn't really supposed to play Jerry Lundegaard. He wasn't? No, no, he first auditioned. Well, he first auditioned for the part of her deputy sheriff. I got the script to read for the uh, detective. Um, it was one scene, and uh, I read that, and Joel and Ethan said, that's real good. You want to look at uh, this, this other role, Jerry Lindergaard? I said, yeah. And I went out in the hall, and I looked at the scenes, and I went in, and I read it for them, and they said, that's real good. You want to work on it and come back tomorrow? I said, yeah. I wanted it. Oh, God, I wanted it, which is really a dangerous thing for an actor. You want it too badly, and oof, it's hard to audition well when you want it that badly. But I went in, and uh, I read. I thought I did well, and they said, that's real good. Thanks, thanks. And I was on pins and needles because I knew it was Joel and Ethan Cohen. Everyone was going to see it, everyone in the biz, whether it was a hit or not, everyone was going to see it. I was born to play that role. I understood it completely. I mean, it was instantaneous that I knew what that guy was about and how to play it. And um, I found out they were going to New York to see some actors. 
So I got my jolly little Lutheran ass on an airplane and I flew to New York and crashed that audition. I walked in and I said, they said, oh, Bill. And I said, yeah, I'm worried about you guys. I'm afraid you're going to screw up your movie by casting someone else in this role. They went, huh, you want to read again? And I said, yeah, and I read well. And um, I had worked on the dialect, which I think was important to them. And um, I said to Ethan, um, if you don't give me this role, I'm going to shoot your dog. He just got a puppy. <laughs> uh, he laughed, thank God. Uh, and I was, I had a little cabin in Vermont. I still have it, gotten it in the dead of winter. And um, I had been up there for about five days. And I had I built a wood shop and I'd spent all day turning bowls. I have a lathe, a big lathe. I'd been up there smoking dope and turning bowls. And that's what I did when I wasn't working. And um, the phone rang and I got that job. And I was all alone. In the wilds of Vermont, my next neighbor was two and a half miles away. I was running around screaming and yelling. Oh man, there was no one to tell. It was a good night. Because I think Bill at the time wasn't, you know, he certainly wasn't a movie star, I don't <laughs> think. <laughs> I don't think so. So he was I think a mammoth this, guy. He did mammoth plays. He did mammoth plays, and maybe some small movies like that from, you know, mammoth movies from Chicago. But, you know, he got an Academy Award nomination, and this movie completely changed his life. Who could have been, who could have been better? I mean, he is, to me, it's, it's the performance of the film. Yeah, Wade, I, it's Jerry. I, Wade, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's Gene. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. I don't know what to do. It's Jean. Yeah, Wade, I, it's Jerry. I... Wade, it's Jerry. I, we got to talk. It's something hard, geez. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Wade Gustafson, please. I mean, Fran and him and Fran. Yes, but his is talk about complicated. It really is. It really yeah. is, and all the kind of hiding that he does, the hiding of, mm -hmm. uh, but then he lets it out. It, it had, yeah. of course, the 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 that classic scene when he's cleaning his windshield. He's in his office. What happens in the office? Is he on the phone? Is it the after a phone call with his father-in-law? No, I think it's, it's, it's the phone call. I think it's the phone call with Riley, the brilliantly named Riley Diefenbach. Mr. Lundegaard, this is Riley Diefenbach from GMAC. How are you this morning? Real good. How are you doing? Pretty good, Mr. Lundegaard. You're damn hard to get on the phone. <laughs> it's pretty darn busy here, but that's the way we like it. <laughs> well, that's for sure. Now, 
I just need on these last, uh, these financing documents that you sent us, I can't read the serial numbers of the vehicles. Yeah, but I, I already got the, it's okay, the loans are in place. I already got the, the, what, the... Yeah, the uh, 320000 you got the money last month. Yeah, so we're all set then. Yeah, but the vehicles that you're borrowing on, I, I just can't read the serial numbers on your application. Maybe if you could just uh, read them. Yeah, but the deal's already done, I already got the money. Yes. We have an audit here. I just have to know that these vehicles you're financing with this money, that they really exist. Yeah, well, they exist, all right. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure they do. But I, I can't read the serial numbers here, so if you could read me some... Yeah, but, uh, see, um, I don't have them in front of me. Why don't I just fax you over a copy? No, no, well, no fax is no good. That's what I have, and I, I can't read the darn yeah. thing. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll have my girl send you a copy then. Okay, because if I can't correlate this note with the specific vehicles, then I gotta call back that money. Yeah, how much money was that? 320000 I gotta correlate that money with the cars it's being lent on. Yeah, okay, no problem. I'll just fax that right over no, no, to no, you. No, 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 fax it. I mean, send it over. I'll shoot it right over okay. to you then. Okay, fine. Okay, real good then. And he's such a schlemiel, but, but to do that is what I think, that's what I thought was so impressive is to play the schlub, you know, and yet somehow there are layers to him where he's doing the most reprehensible thing to his he's son. He's a sociopath. <laughs> you know? But yet yeah, he's so bumblingly yeah. kind of likable and, yeah. mid, you know, I guess Minnesota nice. That's right. That, I mean, um, the element of Minnesota filters into everything. I don't know. Uh, I don't, is Buscemi supposed to be a local? I'm not sure. No, that's a good are. question. I guess so. I mean, well, he might be a local to North Dakota because that's yeah. the only that's yeah. the only thing that takes place there. Certainly, Stormare's character, you know, has the Swedish name of a local. But Carl, yeah, maybe. I guess so. I mean, Buscemi doesn't read as Brooklyn in this as no. he tends to. No. No, but I think, as far as I could remember, I feel like he speaks with his normal voice. Mm -hmm. There's just something about probably the writing and the things that he has to say. Right, you don't go, you don't go. What's that guy doing there? Yeah, that's exactly. So Macy has that oleaginous lack of trust, but then there are so many critical, tiny little scenes, like when the guy trying to buy the car from him calls him out. He never done this before, but seeing as it's special circumstances and all, he says I can knock a hundred dollars off that true coat. One hundred. You lied to me, Mr. Lundgaard. You're a bald-faced liar. Fucking please. A fucking liar. Fucking please. Where's my goddamn checkbook? Let's get this over with. Where is it? And Macy's face is just resigned that he knows he is a liar. He knows he is all these terrible things. And then in the ice scraping scene, after he throws his little tantrum and is perfectly, the costumes are phenomenal and could be none more perfect. His little puffy coat and his hat, his, his hat sad little hat. Ear flaps. The ear flaps. hats and all of them had ear flaps. Stan Grossman has the stupidest hat. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like this hat that I'm wearing. Yes. Ear flaps. Well, you need those flaps in the minus 20s. Oh, yes. But um, then he has to go back and he has to post tantrum. He still has to scrape the windshield. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, after the restaurant scene where the father-in-law storms off, he still has to be nice to the cashier. Right. 
you know, there's just so many incredible tiny little filigrees, I guess, in that performance that make it what it is. And you're right. It's really him and Francis McDormand who I read something that said she's the moral center that pulls us back to decency at the end of the film when we've gone to these really dark places. I, I kind of forget how dark it is. And I just always think about how funny it is. But watching it again, how many so people many, die? There's so many people die. Seven bodies, I think. There's the trooper, the two people in the car. Okay. The so father-in-law, the two parking lot attendants. Does he kill and, both of them? Well, oh, no, you're right. No, he not the first one. He kills the second one. He kills the second one. Okay, so that's one parking lot attendant. Bashemi Bashemi dies. Mm-hmm. And the, and the and wife. wife. And the wife is dead. So, Have you ever heard the urban legend that the... the in the in the car where that Stormar chases and goes off the road. Did you ever hear that one of them in the car was uh, Prince? Yeah, well, in the credits, the reason that started was if you watch the credits for the movie to this day, you'll see that that person is credited with Prince's symbol. But and no, I don't think it. I mean, I've watched. No, it's it's definitely uh, not Prince. It is the storyboard. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't watch the credits uh, recently. But even back then, it was that little glyph. I think that's yeah, it's the glyph. Yep. So that was an in joke because they were filming in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and they wanted to pay homage, I guess. But actually, the person who plays that part, who is shot in the back by Stormare's character wearing that red coat, is the storyboard artist for the film. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. That. That that scene where Buscemi buries the case and then looking around to the right and just seeing yawning white nothingness and then looking to the left and seeing more yawning white nothingness and then taking his little red ice scraper and planting it in the snow and then promptly turning and walking and sort of falling into snow deeper than his little ice thing. And just thinking, (laughs) you're never going to find this, even if you do manage to survive this somehow, which obviously you're not going to, but... And Francis McDormand, it's so fascinating because you mentioned Blood Simple, which is such a great and original movie. I'm excited for you to go see it again. Yeah, I, I need to see it again. That was her first film. Oh, I didn't know that. And that's where she met them. They were kind of a double-headed creation that was chain-smoking nonstop on the middle of the table was an ashtray the size of a soup bowl, full of butts. And I walked into this room that was full of smoke, and their faces kind of emerged. I smoked at the time, so I lit up. And I can't say they were formed as filmmakers, but they were formed as this kind of crazy, two-headed, chuckling, I don't even know what to call it. They were kind of like a circus show because they had already adapted this sound that they make that we, all of us that know them, hope to hear. And it's... (laughs) And when they both do it at the same time, even if you're in a very serious situation, even if you're doing a death scene on camera, you know that you've got it right. They liked what I did in the audition. They asked me to come back later that afternoon to read with John Gett, who had been cast. I said, what time? They said, two. I said, I can't. 
Why not? Because my boyfriend at the time was having his first uh, job on a soap opera. He had two lines. I wanted to watch it that afternoon. Well, when could you come back? Says Joel. I said, around four. He goes, great. And, and, and subsequently, they both told me that that's why I got the, one of the reasons I got the job, because I didn't seem like I needed it that much. And I have to say, the lesson I learned from that is going into auditions, don't be too needy and have an agenda of your own. She said, you know, that, that it always kind of talked and said, um, hey, you know, we wrote this movie Fargo and, you know, it's got a really good part in it for you. And when she read the script of Marge Gunderson, she said at the time she was at a point in her career where she was looking for like a devious prostitute or a serial killer, like something meaty that she felt as an actor, she could really, you know, sink her claws into and show what she had. And then she gets this part of this kind of like stodgy, pregnant Midwestern police chief with like the mall haircut. And she didn't get it when she read it. She was like, really? And she said when they were making the movie, nobody on the set sort of thought her character would, ascend and become this kind of iconic female role that it has become. She said, we were all thinking about what Steve and Peter were doing. They, it was all, it was kind of their movie. Their, really? their, their acting on set was the stuff that everybody kind of wanted to see every day. And they all felt that's the movie. Those guys are the movie. And then she's the heart of the movie and that's she's the heart of the movie. But then, when it came out, I mean, it's such, I remember that, like, that, that that was such a different role, it felt like, for, a, for an actor. Mr. Lundegaard? Huh? Yeah. Could I take just a minute of your time here? What, what is it all about? Huh? Do you mind if I sit down? Carrying quite a load here. You're the owner here, Mr. Lundegaard? Nah, I, executive sales manager. Well, you can help me. My name's Marge Gunderson. My father-in-law. He's the owner. Uh-huh. Well, I'm a police officer from Up Brainerd investigating some malfeasance. And I was just wondering if you'd had any new vehicles stolen off the lot in the past couple of weeks. Specifically a Tancala Sierra. Mr. Lundegaard. Brainerd? Yeah, yeah. Home of Paul Bunyan, Babe the Blue Ox. Babe the Blue Ox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we got that big statue up there. <laughs> so, you haven't had any vehicles go missing then? Nope. No, ma'am. Okie dokie. Thanks a bunch. I'll let you get back to your paperwork then. And she says in the making of, like, I don't know what it was, but I think maybe as a country, we were just kind of ready for, a, for Marge in a certain way. And of course, she gave that incredible acceptance speech at the Oscars. Do you remember that, where she kind I, of... I do, now that you mention it. We five women were fortunate to have the choice, not just the opportunity, but the choice to play such rich, complex female characters. And I congratulate producers like Working Title and Polygram for allowing directors to let, uh, allowing directors to make autonomous casting decisions based on qualifications and not just market value. 
encourage, I encourage writers and directors to keep these really interesting female roles coming. And while you're at it, you can throw in a few for the men as well. You know, and it gave this great kind of cry for independence. And this is a, for this movie to win what it won was really a thing in, you know, 1997, whenever is, the Oscars is it, happened. Is this the only Oscar they won for Best Picture? It's a good question. Let me take a look. The thing that, that I've seen happen, you don't see a performance while you're shooting does not really, of course, editing helps, but it mm -hmm. does not really emerge or take life until it's on the screen as right. opposed to while you're shooting. I mean, the flashy role like Buscemi, of course, he's got shot in the mouth and he's got blood on him and he's screaming. And of course, that's exciting, no matter if you're, uh, you know, on the set. Sure. But sometimes in a film, it's like, okay, really good work. And then the, then, then you, well, it happened with no paid nudity. It's like Nathan Lane. I knew it was good, but then when in the context of the film cut together, it really kind of mm. takes even a, more of a life, not a, necessarily a bigger life. But I understand that about Fran's role, which is a, quiet is the wrong word. Oh my God, it's a beautiful performance. It's iconic. It's just so, it's shattering. Would he, would he the car with him on the verge of tears talking to Stormar? Yeah. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. yesterday i think yeah. when i watched it uh, most recently yesterday i think it has a lot to do with where we are right now mm -hmm. sure but i've always been a huge fan of hers huge and she manages like so many of them do to tread this line between parody and and a warmth <laughs> and a like the the relation between her and norm is so real and so mm -hmm pure it's a good marriage mm -hmm. and even though you might look at them outwardly and laugh in in our east in our coastal elite mm -hmm. status and look at them as rubes 
but at the center, they have this relationship that anybody would be lucky to have founded on such such sturdy foundation. Absolutely. Absolutely. They announced it. They announced it? Yeah. So? Three cent stamp. You're Mallard? Yeah. That's terrific. It's just a three cent. It's terrific. Hoffman's blue wing teal got the 29 cent. People don't much use the three cent. Oh, for peace. Of course they do. Whenever they raise the postage, people need the little stamps. Yeah? When they're stuck with a bunch of the old ones. Yeah. I guess. It's terrific. I'm so proud of you, Norm. Heck, Norm, you know, we're doing pretty good. I love you, Margie. I love you, Norm. Two more months. Two more months. At the end of the film, I said that uh, almost to myself. I went, man, that is a beautiful life. That yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah. She's going to have a baby. And it's, yeah. And then the movie ends with this little, like, little ping. There's a little ping in the music. Yeah. Uh, the music is, is another character. More... In all their movies, but this one particularly, I think that Carter Burwell's score is as much a character in this movie as, you know, the, the, the classic rock soundtrack in Lebowski is such a huge part of that movie. But his ominous and dum, 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 the drums. gothic it's it's an american gothic tale that's being presented to us on this screen i wrote down the car that uh, bill macy is driving with the car on the trailer coming out of the white <laughs> yeah. and the music is very it's very sad it had been a while since i watched the film and then I, then the music had so much life it brought mm -hmm. back a good score is 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 unobtrusive but when it just creates so much um texture mm -hmm. and the score changed this it's a score of a, a, a lot of uh, nuance i yes i think it's did he did he win i don't think so let me look at the uh, fargo awards just a button the other one they won best picture for no country for old men they did yes this movie i've only seen that one time I need to see that again. Academy Award for Best Actress, Frances McDormand. They won for screenplay. I think those are the only two Oscars for this movie. But people were nominated. More people were nominated. I just don't have them written down here. Macy. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, Macy, Buscemi, Kristen Rudrud, who plays Lundegaard's wife. Yeah, it's here. 
leads the Badgers in goal production with five this year. How you doing, Wade? Yeah, pretty good. What you watching there? Gophers. Who they playing? <laughs> He's staying for supper then? Yeah, I think so. Dad? What? Are you staying for supper? Yeah. I mean, talk about talk about the importance of a supporting role being so brilliantly out of left field. I mean, she is phenomenal. She's so good. She's so good. What's his name get nominated? Did uh did uh the de- the father-in-law? I can't Oh, uh, Harvey Presnell? Yeah. No. Nope. No. Should have. He worked a lot after that. He worked a lot after that. It was like a Travolta-esque restart of his career being in this movie. I'm thinking popped into my head was uh, uh, he's in uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan. I have a letter here written a long time ago to a Mrs. Bixby in Boston. So bear with me. Dear madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine that would attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the Republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost. The solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. That's right. That popped into my head. That's right. And I he's 6'4", apparently. Really tall. I think he's gone. I think he's Yeah, he passed away. away a few years ago. Yeah. Another little, t- another little touch I love is, did you notice that Jerry Lundegaard has a Playboy magazine in the magazine rack next to the throne in the bathroom? Did you see that? Oh, no. <laughs> it's just such a little set decoration thing that is so, so totally perfect. You know, the more I talk about these movies and listen to directors that I end up admiring, you realize that what the job is, is attention to every one of these little details in real time and somehow not just triaging them and forgetting to, or letting go of some of the smallest details. Because I could imagine standing there at 30 people want to ask you questions. All right. These 15 questions you're asking me, I'm not even going to just, I'm just going to say no to all those because I don't have time to deal with that. I got to deal with a more important question, which is like my lead actor or this cinematographer question. But I think that the balance of their genius ends up being putting it on paper so specifically with such authenticity and such originality, and then working enough with the right types of people in their circle. Everyone says it's a drama free set. There's no pyro. There's nobody's yelling. Nobody's upset. Well, they use the same people over and over again. And I have Mm -hmm. a feeling if there's somebody that's a jerk off, 
they're gone yep. and they keep the same people. And it's a it's a wonderful kind of club to be part yeah. of. If I ever got the opportunity to direct another film, there's a couple people that I would use over and over mm-hmm. and over again for my sure. film. And a few I wouldn't. But um, <laughs> that probably happened with them. But Roger Deakins, did you see 1917? I haven't seen that yet. Oh, God. I, mean, I know. He's like... But I did see Blade Runner 2049 five times in a theater. So he, he was a DP on that? Yeah, he won back-to-back Academy Awards. He won Blade Runner and, and 1917. I did not. I did not realize that. Nineteen. I mean, but the Cone Brothers—they're not going to let go of him. <laughs> I got to see nineteen seventeen. I resisted it because I resist anything that feels like I'm going to see a gimmick, which is like it's never in one shot. Noticed, I never even noticed that shot. No. Okay, that's what I need to. That's what I need to hear. Never even noticed it. I went. Well, my dad was a, a World War One insane. Uh, read every book about World War One, and I went on his. Wow, would have been I. His ninety eighth birthday, I wow. was in nineteen seventeen for my old man, and Amazing. it was great. But that I was going to say, oh my god, I got to watch for this one shot. I didn't even notice it. It huh. it's not. It's not a gimmick. They didn't even need to mention it because right. It, it's it's pretty. I mean, just it's so brilliantly shot, but it's not. Not because of that gimmick. I think what's impressive about Deacons in this movie, and he has one of the more endearingly uh, heartwarming commentary tracks on the iTunes extras, because the only commentary that's available is Deacons doing a commentary of Fargo. And so, of course, I listen to that just being a Deacons guy. And Mm -hmm. cinematographers have the most hilarious kind of take on what's important in a scene, which usually has nothing to do with what we as viewers respond to like it's not so much about the acting or the performances or the script here or there it's always about just brilliantly subtle weird things about locations and how he lit this Mm -hmm. and and in this movie a lot about what he didn't do he's sort of like i don't really know why they have me here because i mean this bar just was a great location i just set up the camera and rolled it we didn't really bring in any lights you know and a lot of this stuff is is talking about staying out of the way of the story and not doing a lot of camera tricks or gimmicks or things like that. And really just shooting things uh, really simply, you know, over the shoulder two shot conversations and trusting the script. I was paying attention to it. It's not like it hit me. He's not doing anything, which of course he's was doing a lot, but I'm going, this is not, there's not tricks here. Right. This is just like, there's a scene, an interesting scene. I mean, of course, they're talking across the desk when Fran uh, McDormand uh, Marge comes to talk to uh, Jerry in his office. Yeah, and it's not the sec. It's not the last time when he when he uh, drives when off. he loses it. It's yeah, the first time. Yes, and it's just her, him, her, him. Uh, one shots, mm-hmm. never, never, uh, never any kind of two shot kind of thing. And yeah, really, uh, I noticed it. Usually, yeah. I, I. Some people watch movies and they watch they watch for the shots. That that struck me because I was watching this a little bit more under a little bit more under a microscope. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, I wouldn't. 
again, I don't want to use the word simple, but it was, there weren't tricks. No. There weren't a lot of tricks. The other, the other conversation really brilliantly shot the way you're talking is, and I, I posted this yesterday on Instagram. I think you, you saw it and liked it. I, for 25 years, have been awed by the Mike Yanagita scene mm-hmm. in the Radisson mm-hmm. with Marge and Mike Yanagita. It's, it's a scene I've watched now for whatever it is, 24, 25 years. And every time this simple scene shot exactly the way you're talking, uh, even more so because I think that one is an over-the-shoulder single shot. And mm-hmm. it's just it gives you that feeling that you're just sitting next to them and listening to this conversation. Mike? Mart? Jeez. Oh, 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 you look great. Yeah, so do you. Oh, easy there, easy there. Easy there, easy there. You do too. I'm expecting Oh, I see that. that that's great. Oh, what can I get you? Oh, just a Diet Coke, please. Great. Okay. <laughs> this is a nice place. Yeah, you know, it's a Radisson, so it's pretty good. Mm. Yeah. And the acting is crazy on both of them. I mean, uh, why do you think that scene is? I, it's. I know why it's there. Why? I know why it's there. I know a lot of people have said of the movie, "Why is this scene here? It doesn't do anything." So, you're living in a diner then? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of years now. Uh, it's actually Eden Prairie, that that school district. Mm. So, Chief Gunderson then. So, you went and married Narm, son of a Gunderson. Oh, yeah, a long time ago. Great, great. Well, it does a lot, but why? Well, the Coens say that that scene was written to give us Marge outside of her marriage and outside of the case. Mm -hmm. So that we learn more about Marge in that moment. It's like when you observe your spouse or your friend in a store or an interaction with a stranger and they don't know that you're watching and you feel like even though you've lived with this person for 30 years, you're glimpsing something mm-hmm. about them true. <laughs> right. I think that I you think that you recognize something. You don't even recognize, yeah. Uh-huh. I think this scene for them was about showing this side of Marge that is a cop inside, so internally, but in this in, in this awkward weird interaction with a guy whose level of crackpot we won't even know for another 20 or 30 minutes in right. the movie until she has the phone call with right. her other high school friend. I was like, oh, what? They were never married. Mike, no, Mike was bothering her for a while, but he never got married. Well, what about you, Mike? Are you married? You got kids? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was married. Uh, I was married to... You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh. Uh, okay. It's just to give us more of Marge as an essentially decent person who will sit there with Mikey Onagita, even as it starts to get weird. Sorry. Oh, uh, no, I no, just so I can see you. Don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to. Uh... No, no. That's... And we learn something about her essential decency in a movie that's really about most people not having any decency toward each other. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it's there. And when I also think the Coens write this stuff and don't overthink it. Like I think you know they said of that's what I think. I I I like that you 
I like hearing you say that. Like when they said when when they talked about having Sam Elliott do the the character of the stranger in in the Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. They have a great anecdote in the making of where they talk about Sam showing up and saying like, well, boys, don't, what am I doing in this movie here? And they didn't have anything to tell him. We don't really know Sam, to be honest with you. You know, it's just like they don't I don't think they chase down their ideas and make sure they hold water except for plot elements. But I think if they have an idea like let's have Sam Elliott be in the Big Lebowski, even though he's he's this outlandish creature from a West that's not really about this Los Angeles noir take on Chandler. Yet it somehow works. And I think the reason it works is because they don't overthink that. Of course, I agree. And I like the idea that they, I don't think they overthink their films. I don't, I I started to read this book. I literally, it's about the Coen brothers. I forget who wrote it. I started to read it because we were going to do this. I stopped reading it. It was so overanalyzing everything Mm -hmm. that they've done. And I just went, you're, you're, you're crazy. <laughs> you don't think that they're not doing this for that reason. I didn't get yeah. to, I didn't get to Fargo and I was going to go straight to Fargo, but I, I did. And then I went, I don't want to, I don't want to read mm-hmm. this kind of stuff about this film that we're going to talk about because it's, it's wrong. I did this. I, I did I ever mention to you? I, re, I read this. Uh, I read for the, uh, the Bra- Jewish Braille Institute. Okay, uh, <laughs> right. I, I read books for blind people. First, they 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 do them in Braille. If any book has a Jewish content, and okay. uh, then they then then someone reads them. And a guy wrote a book about Stanley Kubrick and the Jewish content of all his films. <laughs> it, was the, it was the most ridiculous. It was like Barry Lyndon is left-handed. <laughs> that means he's Jewish. Oh, are you crazy? So that's what this book was. It was like dissecting the Cone Brothers films. You're allowed to watch a film and dissect it for yourself, but don't don't tell me that the Cone Brothers no think that way because they. I I'm sure they don't. You know they don't. I mean, just watch they any don't. interview they did with Charlie Rose, who which are kind of unintentionally hilarious because. Charlie Rose, who has this kind of combination of being totally unprepared and yet sounding completely, you know, omniscient about the subject at hand, Mm -hmm. is the type of person and to be on a show like that is the type of American cultural thing that they inherently would just send up and not ever take seriously. And he's trying to ask him about stuff like that. And they just don't, they don't reply. Another great anecdote to your point is Macy tells the story of how, you know, if you remember, remember when this movie came out, it was such a big deal that the, the following is based on a true story. You know, the, the names not, of... Right? The, which it's not. I mean, the names of the dead have been... The names of the living have been changed to protect the innocent, and the names of the dead have been kept to honor their memory. Like, it was a big deal when that was revealed to be just another of their gags uh-huh. on our, our, our culture. Were people, were, people, were people outraged? I'm sure. Of course they were. They were upset. They were, you know, uh, and the Coens, to their credit, and Macy quotes this, like, they actually wrote this brilliant apology letter, which is exactly the bullshit apology that people write when they get caught doing something like that. And the, the letter is basically like, we will, we take very seriously our position and uh, people will no longer work for us who perpetrated this fraud upon society. You know, it's this brilliant take on it. And you're right that 
I think they take aspects of it so seriously. It's like someone said of Lebowski, I think it was Michael Chernis said, you know, Lebowski is not a serious movie, but the way it's made is taken so seriously by everyone involved. And that's why it's what it is. You know, same thing with Fargo. It's like these, this dirty little crime movie is somehow this great thriller, but it's also this amazing commentary on American society somehow, and a commentary on kind of what values are and aren't important in American society. Do you think there's a possibility, and again, maybe I'm overthinking it, that they wrote that this is a true story to give the story a little more, not heft, but, or they just did it as a goof. I think they did it as a goof. I think that it's taken from, I grew up in Connecticut and there was a really famous case at the time of a guy in a pretty tony town in Connecticut had killed his wife and put her through a wood chipper. And I just was doing a little research last night and it turns out he's due to get out of jail this year. This happened in like 1986, 87. This was a big story in Connecticut at the I, time. I think I, what, what year did it happen? 86 or 87, I want to say. I feel like I remember. And it was a big deal. It was a big national story. Uh And I think they've been kicking around this Fargo idea for quite a while. And so I think, so I know, I think they did it to, as a commentary on our addiction to believing that what you see in an obviously fictional film, the following is based on true Mm -hmm. events. Like anybody who wrote anything knows how bullshit that is. Right. What you're calling every week, uh, 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 (laughs) Joe Friday. What was that? You probably. Dragnet. Dragnet. They said it's based on true I don't yeah. know. So. No. Okay, what else? Oh, well, I want to go on more about the Mike Yanagita scene because this is going to be my only chance in life to really get on tape the depth of my feeling here. Stephen Park, who many people will remember as playing the Korean shopkeeper in Do the Right Thing, who has the hilarious interaction with Radio Rahim. 20 de-energizers. 20 de-energizers? D, not C, D. C, energizers? D, motherfucker, D. Learn to speak English first, all right? D. How many you say? 20, motherfucker, 20. What the fuck you? Motherfucker. <laughs> motherfucker you. you. You all right, man, you all right. Just give me the motherfucking batteries, all right? 20 D fucking batteries. Hey, wait, yo, wait, wait, wait. What's the date on them, man? What's the date on them, the date, the fucking date. What? Can you hear? Can you fucking speak English? The date. The date. The marcher. Marcher. What the fuck you talking about March? 1991. Oh, March. It's March, motherfucker. March. Yo, man, you sure that's 20? No, man. No, no, no. Take them out, man. Count them again. What? Count the shits again, man. Motherfucker. Which was first? Do the right thing or? I think Do the Right Thing is 1990, I want to say. 1989. And this is 19... Fargo. 95? 96. Uh, And Stephen Park, he was also uh, apparently on In Living Color. That's right. He did one season on In Living Color. I never watched it. Occasionally I'd watch, I'd see it, but I didn't watch it regularly. He's great. I mean, he's been... I think since the mid-90s, he's probably spent more of his time being an advocate for underrepresented 
underrepresented Asian, Asian acting mm-hmm. being sort of respected more. And I think that's given a lot of his, a lot of his times. He, he has a famous incident, a story that he tells about doing a spot on Friends. And he says the first AD called an Asian American actor to the set over the walkie talkie with the words, I don't have time for this. Where, where's Hoshi, Toshi, or whatever the fuck his name is. Get the Oriental guy. And Stephen Park was mortified. This guy didn't even have the respect to learn the name of an actor who had been a, you know, who somebody who'd been in the business for 40 years who was doing this part on Friends. And that was the incident that really sparked him to, to say like, wow, this kind of tokenism is so embedded in what we're doing. But when I watch him in Fargo, man, I mean, that is acting, my friend. That is an insane ability to have control over this character who, like I said, I don't, this is the kind of stuff with acting I'm always so fascinated by is like, so obviously as the actor, you know that everything he's saying to her is false. Um, so uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. You, you remember Linda. She was a year behind us. Yeah, I think I remember. Yeah. yeah. She, oh yeah. <laughs> so it didn't work out, huh? Well, and then I, and then I've been working for Honeywell for a few years now. Oh, well, they're a good outfit. Yeah, if you're an engineer, yeah, you could do a lot worse. But it's uh, n- not, uh, it's nothing like your, your achievement. Well, it sounds like you're doing really super. Right? In your mind, you know that. You have to know that to do the scene. Yet, for us in the movie theater, we don't know that. It's played so realistically. It's not that, uh, it's not that things didn't work out. It's, uh, uh Linda, uh, had leukemia, you know. Uh, she was, uh, she, she passed away. No. Uh, it was tough, uh, was long. Uh, she fought real hard, Mark. You know, uh, that's what, what can you say? Oh, better times, huh? Better times. Oh, and then I saw you on the TV, and uh, I remembered, you know, I always liked you. Well, I always liked you. I always liked you so much. So, Mike, uh, should we get together another time, you think? No, I, I... That when we find out later through the phone call that he's a stalker and he wasn't married, his wife didn't die of leukemia. Like, do you play the second truth while sitting in the booth with Francis? And that's how it... And that's somehow underneath the performance? Or do actors not even think about it that way? That's a tough question. Um, well, it's embedded. It's, 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 you know, technically speaking, you just have to play it as, as, as written. Yes, I think you. I think you do, but in your marrow, it's false. You can't give it away. You can't give anything away, or it wouldn't work. When he comes over and puts his arm around her. I was married. Uh, I was married to... You mind if I sit over here? Uh, I was married to Linda Cooksey. No, why don't you sit over there? I prefer that. Huh? Oh. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I've seen this movie 15, 20 times. It, I was so uncomfortable. I know that the whole thing is some sociopathic, really disturbed guy, 
And then, of course, the way she handles it. And then, of course, he keeps saying he's sorry. Oh, no, uh, no, just so I can see you don't have to turn my neck. Oh, sure, sure. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't mean to. No, uh... no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, uh, sorry. Um... But as an actor... As I said, you can't give anything away or the scene doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You cannot give anything away that anything that he's saying to her is not true. Right. So, I mean, in a way he has to, it's like, you know, they say when you're playing comedy, the secret, you have to play it really straight and that's how you make it really funny. So maybe he has to play it really straight and that's, but you know, as an actor and as a guy who read the script, like he knows. So, so maybe it's more about not letting that, take over too much and in his, but, but I think when you do watch it in some of his, yeah, yeah. Some of the ways that he responds to her is that's where I think there's a little hint of the, the fakery that the character is doing on her, even though we don't know it yet in that point of the movie. I'm sorry. It's, uh, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't. Uh, I thought we'd have a really terrific time. It's okay, Mike. You were such a super lady. And then, I've been so lonely. It's okay, Mike. And you're right, too, that her, I don't want to give, like, it's a, it's a duet to me. Like, he has the showy part in the scene, but it's a duet between those two actors. And her responses to him are incredible. Like, the way she deftly says... No, why don't you sit over there, Mike? I prefer that. And the authority, like to have the authority to do that. I'm the type of person I would just sit there and make myself uncomfortable so as not to create an awkward situation for the person who's being inappropriate, right? That's the second time she brilliantly diffuses through comedy because in the first time, remember when uh, the, her, the sheriff who Bill Macy was originally reading for when they're driving in the car after visiting the murder scene. Did you look in his citation book? Yeah, last vehicle he rode in was a tan Sierra at 2.18 a.m. Under a plate number, he put DLR. I figured they stopped him or shot him before he could finish filling out the tag number. Uh-huh. So I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. They don't got no match yet. And she sort of points out the obvious, which is... I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. Yeah? Yeah. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. DLR. Oh. Jeez. And then she tells him a joke. Say, Lou, do you hear the one about the guy couldn't afford personalized plates, so he went and changed his name to J3L2404? Yeah, that's a good one. To let him off the hook. That's, that's the Minnesota nice. So he doesn't feel so bad. And she has a little hint of a smile her face you know right and that's the genius i mean it's it's crazy and her decency with with mike uh what's it mike yanagita she's he fools her i mean she yeah. believes everything he says right oh here's another importance to that scene which i learned so when she has the phone call with the other college friend and learns that mike yanagita has fooled her mm-hmm. That's the moment where she then goes back to see Jerry Lundergaard the second time and basically breaks the case because he flees 
And from that point on, she then solves the case. Oh, so that so, seeds that. Yes. Now, so that, that scene also kind of caught, it's a scene where since she has had to reassess her her version of something in her head, it causes her to reassess Jerry Lundegaard, who I think in the first scene, you know, when she so brilliantly exits the scene by saying, all right, then I'll let you get back to your paperwork. And mm-hmm. it's it's a passive aggressive way of her letting him know she knows he's just doodling on the golf pad when she walked in. He's not actually busy. She's letting him know she gets him even in that first scene. But then she goes back and that's the second scene where he then you know, okay, I'll do a damn lot inspection, right? Mr. Lundegaard, sorry to bother you again. Can I come in? Yeah, no, I'm kind of I'm uh, kind of busy here. I understand. I'll keep it real short then. I'm on my way out of town, but I was wondering, do you mind if I sit down? Carrying a bit of a load here. No. I... Yeah, it's this vehicle I asked you about yesterday. I was just wondering. Yeah, like I told you, we haven't had any vehicles go missing. Okay. Are you sure? Because, I mean, how do you know? Because the crime I'm investigating, the perpetrators were driving a car with dealer plates, and they called someone who works here, so it'd be quite a coincidence if they weren't, you know, connected. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a... Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know, but, well, how how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here? Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and uh, there's no... uh... Sir... You have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. I'm... And takes off. And then he does something that I never I never noticed before. He says, he, he, he as he's leaving the room, she goes, Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I, that struck me that she, she said, I couldn't quite... Well, she her. says, you have no cause to get... Doesn't she snippy, say no, snippy yeah. with me. And then he gets snippy again. I'm... I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not arguing here. I'm cooperating, and there's. No, we're doing all we can. Sir, could I talk to Mr. Gustafson? Mr. Lundegaard. Well, heck, if you want to. If you want to play games here, I'm working with you on this thing here, but... Okay. I'll do a damn luck count. Sir, right now? Yeah, right now. You're darn tootin'. So damn important to you. I'm sorry, sir. Ah, what the Christ. He says, what the Christ? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, what the Christ. Oh, my God. That's That's really awkward. And then she kind of, I love that she, it's like the classic thing. She did the classic thing where she's in a room and he he has a piece, he has some sort of document. And in most movies, literally they would, because he's not in there, they would turn around, turn it around and look at it and see what it is. But she's so decent. She kind of like 
maybe starts to, and then she just can't. She doesn't. She yeah. doesn't. She doesn't do stuff like <laughs> shit like that. And I never noticed that before. Yeah. Two-time Academy Award winner, Frances McDormand. I mean. What was the other one? Three Billboards. Oh, right. You know, so those are the types of things that when people like that win, you feel the whole thing is maybe less full of shit than it typically is. Absolutely. Oh, I think people, I think there are really people sometimes win that really deserve to win. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's definitely one of them. I've heard a couple of people in this movie talk about, you know, we did it maybe 10 or 15 times. Uh, But I don't think that's the norm. I think that they are after something. And I think like like Lumet, once they get it, they're not afraid to just move on. But I think they're very collaborative. And I think, you know, um, Turturro says that when he got the script for The Big Lebowski, you know, he he counts on the freedom as an actor to come up with little bits of business mm-hmm. of the sort that, you know, he knows that they're interested in. So, you know, the nail, the cocaine nail mm-hmm. painted, the rings, the, the that, that thing, the uh, licking the ball was Torturo's idea. And he thought, I'm doing this stuff, but they're not going to use this. This is all just me kind of indulging myself as an actor. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you know, they used everything that I did, pulling up the socks. That was all kind of Torturo's business that wasn't on the page. And they ended up using all of it. So, but they also like, that's what you're talking about before. Like they wrote that for him. They, 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 it's like, you can, you can just say, John will do something here and it'll work. Mm-hmm. As long as he does these lines, mm-hmm. you know, we'll use what we need or not. So I don't think, I think they're efficient. I think that they, that the sets sound harmonious and that they move forward, but that I think, if it's going to take 10 or 15 to get, it's such a tone thing that to me, that tone to know that you've gotten that in a scene like that dialogue shot between Macy and Francis, you know, maybe, maybe it takes time to get those specific things that you're. 10 or 15 is a luxury that you have if you have money, one thing. Right. Or no money. In my movie, <laughs> uh, we did, you know, we did three or four and we had to move on. Right. Um, but they get they they do it till they're happy probably and move on and then maybe they say do you want to do one and then the actors know that it's in the can and stuff comes stuff because there's a a, a, a relaxation that you would mm-hmm. have knowing that you it's already there and we might not even use this one extra take and something might happen but ten or fifteen is luxurious and also as a director a lot of times you're gonna you know, you, you may know you already have what you want. Mm-hmm. But you probably need maybe some actors, you need to give them a little more, mm-hmm. you give them their stuff to do because whether, even though you're not going to necessarily use it or you think you're not going to use it, it's part of keeping the harmony going. Have you seen, I always forget the damn name of it and I love it so much. What's the Clooney one with Josh Brolin, the old Hollywood movie? Hail um, Caesar? Yeah, I love Hail Caesar. Have you seen that? I did see it. I, it's it's worth revisiting because I like revisited. I auditioned for that. Oh, you um, did for which part? One of the communists. I don't remember who. You must have been one of the communists in the plot. I so, I need to see that again. Sometimes I go see a movie and I didn't get it, and I'm a little like, "Fuck that!" I'm not <laughs> <laughs> and then I just like, I'm too, I'm annoyed a little. But yeah, I need to see it again because I really like 
I really liked what I read. And I like what it's about. It's about that guy, Clooney played, I forget his name. He was the fixer. Was Clooney the guy that- No, that's Josh Brolin. That's Josh Brolin. Yeah. Was Clooney, Clooney sort of brilliantly sends up the idea of himself as a movie star as kind of a, 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 a useless idiot. Who was the student? Was there a studio head? Um, I forget. I there was a studio it. head, but it's really Brolin's movie. He's he's the fixer and he's the engine through which all this unfolds. And, you know, it's funny because when we were talking about Lebowski, I told Michael and Emily, that's a movie. I didn't get that movie until I watched it again two weeks ago, twice to do the podcast with them. You know, because Fargo was such an important experience and I was so blown away that when I then went and saw Lebowski, I just didn't get it at the time. It just wasn't cohesive enough for me coming off something as tightly plotted and intricately woven as Fargo. I didn't get it when I first saw it. And then over the years, I've watched it over and over. Actually, we watched it because there's a lot of sitting in no pay nudity. And there's a lot of sitting mm-hmm. in the bowling alley. And I li- literally wanted to see how they placed people because you keep returning to a place where people are sitting. And I wanted to see yeah. people around. So I watched it a couple times just for the purpose of that. But that yeah. movie is, that movie is <laughs> unbelievable. Jeff Bridges, I mean, everybody. Is Storm Mars, incredible. Is he the guy that comes in? He comes. Is he in it? Oh yeah, yeah. He's one of the guys uh, that they. Yeah, he's he, he's one of the guys. Yeah. yeah, it's him and Flea and someone else. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah, revisit um, Hail Caesar because similarly, it kind of came out. I think maybe it came out after No Country for Old Men or or True Grit or something, and it, it kind of was like what is it, you know, it just or, it was, or I think it was after True Grit. I actually think is it their most recent. No, the most recent was uh, Buster Scruggs. So oh. Caesar was 2016. And Buster Scruggs was 18? Yes. Which I loved. Me too. Uh, so Hail Caesar came out after Inside Llewellyn Davis uh, in 2013. I auditioned for that too. See, that's another one you would have been great in. It's another movie you belong to. I like that movie a lot. I could have seen you as a folk impresario. I forget. I think I auditioned for... I think maybe he was a folk impresario. He came in their house. <laughs> yeah, you're probably the guy who came to sign him to a record contract. Hail Caesar also has a really touching, well-handled, youthful romance bef- be- between an actor I really like a lot, Alden Ehrenreich. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of misused, unfortunately, to play the young Han Solo in a Han Solo <laughs> Star Wars movie that didn't work very well. But he's a really, really interesting capable actor and he has a great little romance who was in, the, uh, who was Caesar. the who was the the young ingenue in that oh uh, Ver- veronica osorio <laughs> so she plays carlotta valdez which is a reference to a character in vertigo and they're kind of young up-and-coming stars who are navigating the studio system and he's this singing cowboy who gets put in a sort of noel coward-esque high comedy of manners that he's completely unsuited for Seems Allegra's a no-show, which is simply a bore. But I'll partner you and Bridge. Why the pout? Would that? It were so simple. Cut. Very good. Very good. 
Um. Let's try this. Your line, just say it as I said. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would the detour so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the would the detour so simple? Watch my mouth. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Keep your head still. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? I'm trying to say that, Mr. Lawrence. Lawrence. I thought. A minute ago, it was Lorraine. No, we can use Christian names, my good dear boy. Lawrence is fine, just as I call you, Hobie. Okay. So, my experience of wa- watching Big Lebowski, I went from sort of in two weeks, I went from I don't, I never got this movie, I never got why everyone's obsessed with this movie. To right now, if you asked me, you know, what what would my top five movies be? I mean, The Big Lebowski would be up there in the in the top three probably because I'm so impressed with it on so many levels. And so I want to go back. Like I, I missed. I missed the Billy Bob Thornton one. I didn't really get that. What was that called? The Man Who Wasn't There. I uh, saw it once. Was it in black and white? Yes. It was. You know, Emily mentioned really liking a serious man. I didn't get, I didn't, I, I didn't really get that either. That's another one I'd like to revisit. I watched it a couple weeks ago because I had worked with Michael Stuhlbarg and I wanted to see his work again. And, uh, you know, I'm Jewish. So it hits home in so many, it, it hits mm-hmm. me so profoundly in some spots. It's, uh, is it even a comedy? I mean, I don't think so. I got to watch that again. It's not a comedy. There's, I, it was nominated for best picture for crying out loud. So I really like it. But there's something that's missing for you. Some, something, I don't want to say missing. I mean, a Minnesota Jewish man. I mean, yeah. this is you. This is this is you're a Midwestern. Oh, it's Jewish about man. their. It's about it's about them. Their upbringing. Yes, right? it's about their upbringing. Maybe just it just reminded me too much of my disturbing upbringing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the sequence of the movies, right? You know, you have Oh Brother, We're Out There. That that was such a phenomena, a cultural phenomena. Right. Bluegrass music was mainstream after that movie. And the next movie was The Man Who Wasn't There, which is, you know, black and white Billy Bob Thornton one, which I don't think I've even seen that. Which is the one with Brad Pitt. That's Burn After Reading. Right. I liked that. I like that, too. But I I should see that again, too. I only saw it Um, once, but I remember liking it. And uh, another one that uh, that I need to see again, I saw it once and it left me a little. I didn't quite know what to make of it was. Hudsucker proxy. Love Hudsucker. I need to I, see it again. That's a great stylized, you know, take on that genre of Hollywood and movies that's probably aged a lot better than a lot of other movies of its era, I would bet. I used to think you were a swell guy. Well, to be honest, I thought you were an imbecile. Amy, I am... Shut up. But then I figured out you were a swell guy. A little slow, maybe. But a swell guy. Well, maybe you're not so slow. But you're not so swell either. And it looks like you're an imbecile after all. Shut up. After all. You haven't talked to me for a week. Now I'm going to say my piece. Look, I've never been dumped by a fella before, and that hurts. 
But what really hurts is watching you outrun your soul, chasing after money and ease and the respect of a bore that wouldn't give you the time of day if you, if you... Worked in a watch factory. <laughs> Shut up! Exactly. Oh, Norville. Don't you remember how you used to feel about the hoop? You told me you were going to bring a smile to the hips of everyone in America, regardless of race, greed, or color. Finally, there'd be a thingamajig that would bring everyone together, even if I kept them apart spatially. You know, for kids. Your words, Norville, not mine. I used to love Norville Barnes. Yes, love him. When he was just a swell kid with hot ideas who was in over his head. But now your head's too big to be in over. Hey. Consider this my resignation. Effective immediately. That's a really good one. And Barton Fink, I haven't I haven't seen since I don't think it came out. Me too. And I'm similarly not I never got everyone being obsessed with with either Barton Fink or Miller's Crossing. I mean, I love I a gangster pack. I was gonna say Miller's Crossing, that too, but I need to see it again. Barton Fink stands out for me because there was a performance by Michael Lerner that was really kind of yes. uh, iconic. Yes, and Miller's true. Crossing. My friend was actually supposed to play the lead in it. His name was Trey Wilson. And then he died very suddenly, young. Mm. And what's his name played the role, I believe, Albert Finney. Yeah, I'm, I'm going down the rabbit hole now because I'm like... But when their films are on, I don't turn them off. Never. Never. No. And I, I'm going to acknowledge that I don't love all their movies. And sometimes I go and I'm maybe just disappointed because I build it up so much because I have so much respect for them. And their body of work is, as you just said, it's, it's amazing. But that's that's the mark of them being real artists is they're they're chasing something that they're after and they're okay with it not always congealing and working in the right mm -hmm. way in order to get to something that they're after. You mentioned Macbeth. That's actually the first one that they're work that they're doing without the other one. That's a Joel Cohen uh, screenplay directed and produced by Joel and Scott Rudin, hmm. starring Denzel Francis. Brendan Gleeson and Corey Hawkins. Well, yeah. and Sean Patrick Thomas, Tragedy of Macbeth. Is that the one we're not supposed to say? Not, is that the one you're not supposed to say the you word? Say it, I don't say it. I call it the okay. Scottish play. I'm, I'm, not, okay, right. I'm not superstitious about anything except the Scottish play. I'm, really? I whistle backstage. <laughs> uh, you're not supposed to do that, but I don't say the Scottish play. Some people okay. say that you can say it, like you can say it, but if you're in a theater and you'd say it, I would yell, be I would yell at you. First of all, you yeah. have to do this thing where you turn around so many times, spit, and then walk out of the theater and then walk back in, apparently. But I'm a little superstitious. But anyhow, they're doing the Scottish play. They're doing the Scottish play. Is it a screenplay by? I mean, have they re yeah, screen, screenplay by Joel, adapted by some guy, William Shakespeare. I'm not Did sure. Did they actually list work. William Shakespeare? Yeah. Oh, good. It's yeah. He gets. He probably has the most IMDb uh, writing credits of any writer. He probably does, based loosely <laughs> on. Uh, loosely based upon. It's interesting. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I want to ask Joel, why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing the Scottish play? Really, I'm. 
not saying why are you doing it because it's a bad idea. I just go, I'm yeah. really interested. What, what, why? I yeah. think well, we'll from, find out. Uh, Polanski did it, I remember. I think a couple people have tried it. So um, which which Coen Brothers films have you done on the, with the series? Uh, Just these two. Oh, are you going to do more? Yeah, I think now 100%. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a rabbit hole guy. So once I get interested, um, I keep going down that. So are you raising Arizona? Oh, that that's the first that's the first one that really got me. That's the first one whose sensibility was was so my sensibility at the time. Yeah, raising Arizona blew me away. Before I sort of fell under the spell of 2001 and Kubrick and things like that, I would have said that's my favorite film. And it's still up there. I still think it holds up brilliantly. It's a fantastic comedy. Oh, it! I haven't seen it for a few years, but of course it does. It will always pull up. I watched a little of it after, cut a little bit of it into Michael and Emily's episode. And um, that drove me to Blood Simple. And just, oh man, I mean, such a great, Great, great noir. I really have to. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch it this week because I have oh. time on my hands. Yeah, this is the time. I think your boy Mehmet. I mean, right? right. Like, what a, what a, what a towering Titanic figure, and so brilliantly used. And I also love about Blood Simple that an actor like Dan Hadaya, who's another guy who's been in everything forever. And has alternately sort of just been like, oh, isn't he the guy who played Nixon in that weird Nixon movie or Election. this TV? Yeah. You know, he's Nick Nick Tortorella from Cheers. Right. Not uh, oh, yeah. Dan Hedaya. Uh But he's so good in that. And um, he's one of those character actor guys that's got the chops, you know. Um, and then Emmett, Mehmet, uh, the story that I heard, he he begged them to let him do something in raising Arizona. So they gave him that one little scene with. Oh, I love that scene. Scene with the uh, cage. <laughs> and I got a job drilling holes in sheet metal. So we're doing paramedical work and affiliation with the state highway system. Not actually practicing, you understand. And me and Bill are patrolling down nine miles. Bill Roberts? No, not that mother scratcher. Bill Parker. Anyway, we're approaching the wreck, and there's this spherical object arresting in the highway and it's not a piece of the car he's the machine shop operator mm -hmm. so then i says to him i says you know that's the <laughs> it, it's akin to the cellmate scene in raising arizona mm -hmm. uh it's akin to the cashiers and some of the the prostitutes in fargo those brilliantly cast fully formed characters who you know have a complete whole backstory to them either through the actor or through the writing Apparently, the guy uh, reminds me of the one. He's got one scene. He's he's uh, in in uh, Fargo. He's sweeping his uh, his he's he's got like a broom. He's cleaning his uh, driveway. Well, oh, I love that. I yes. looked him up, and he, Mr. Mora, he owns a. I mean, he ran a theater company somewhere. He had like three yes. credits, and yep. I always thought that guy was that guy was great. Mr. Mora? Yeah. Officer Olson? Yeah, right-o. Well, 
throw him tin and bar down there at Eklund and Swedlin's last Tuesday, and this little guy's drinking, and he says, so where can a guy find some action? I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, what kind of action? And he says, woman action, what do I look like? And I says, well, what do I look like? I don't arrange that kind of thing. And he says, but I'm going crazy out there at the lake. And I says, yeah, but this ain't that kind of place. Uh-huh. He says, oh, so I get it. So you think I'm some kind of jerk for asking, only you don't use the word jerk. I understand. Then he calls me a jerk, says, last guy thought he's a jerk is dead now. So I don't say nothing. He says, what do you think about that? And I says, well, that don't sound like too good a deal for him then. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. He says, yeah, that guy's dead, and I don't mean of old age. And then he says, geez, I'm going crazy out there at the lake. White Bear Lake? Yeah, well, at Eklund and Swedlin, that's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Oh, sure. Anyway, he's drinking at the bar, so I don't think a whole great deal of it. But then Mrs. Mora, she heard about the homicides down here and thought I should call it in, so I called it in. End of story. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a... Little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. Okay. Well, thanks a bunch, Mr. Mora. You're right. It's probably nothing. But thanks for calling her in. Sure. Looks like she's going to turn cold tomorrow. Oh, yeah. We've got a front coming in. Yeah, you got that right. So good. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the way they look up in the sky yeah. with their parkas at the end of that. Um, yeah, Michael mentioned him. He's he. That's exactly that's exactly what you're talking about. That's that's like Emmett in Raising Arizona and all these other brilliant just cameo parts where uh, a fully formed person and the writing. It's but again, it goes back to the writing. Like just think of the name of the bar that he's telling the cop he tended bar at Eckland and Sweatlands. Like what the hell? That's everything you need to know. Like if you saw that on the page. You know, here's this like beyond middle-aged man tending bar at Eklund and Sweat. I actually said that this guy more than middle-aged to me. He's like <laughs> mighty, like older, and he's a bartender. And they're coming in, and, and it's, and it's so off the wall. Set him up to find a girl for him, and he's like, "Well, it was closer. Eklund and Sweatland's closer to Moose Lake, so I made that assumption. Like the so I made that assumption is the that's the genius of the writing. I've never you know? seen anybody sweep." Uh, snow <laughs> off there, but actually, there's a lot of you know, a lot of ways to clear snow yeah. in Minnesota. I have no doubt. Lee, you're in the full cast and crew family, and you will be on again. We'll do it again, and we'll do something else. Let's do something different. We'll do something. Can we do Barry Lyndon? Oh, you want to do Barry Lyndon someday? Okay, you're on. All right, Jason. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. It's a good one. Thanks. It's a good one. Thanks. Thank you, Lee. You take, take care, care, buddy. Okay. Bye-bye. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.